But I was looking at this passage this morning in Luke chapter 7 and thinking about the fact that in the world around us, talk is often very cheap. It's easy to say things and easy to talk about grand ethical principles, but much harder to put them into practice. When the rubber hits the road, we might say lots of great things, but actually in practice, not live up to them. And over the past few years, there's been a movement known as effective altruism. Basically, it says that if you want to do good things for people, then you should research very carefully the evidence into what is the most effective way of doing good for other people. And there's a whole philosophy that has sprung up around this. Uh, One of the notable people that threw themselves into this effective altruism was a very rich person, a cryptocurrency banker known as Sam Bankman-Fried. And Sam Bankman-Fried in the United States um, discussed this with one of the philosophers associated with effective altruism and thought about what he could do to help people. And the philosopher said to him, well, the best thing that you could do is not to uh, spend your time volunteering for different charitable organizations. The best thing that you can do is just earn lots and lots of money. And then you can give that money away to various different charitable organizations, which was all very good. Unfortunately, if you follow the news, you'll discover that um, in November, just past, Sam Bankman-Fried was convicted of fraud, conspiracy, and money laundering. Massive millions and millions of dollars and sentencing this year faces decades in prison. Now, my point isn't to try and pick in any philosophy in particular or pick in any one in particular, simply to point out the fact that it's very easy to talk in grand ways about all the goods that we're going to do for people and how the world will be a better place because of us, and then to act like a complete scoundrel. But what about the Lord Jesus? In the previous chapter, in Luke chapter 6, we have looked at how he has delivered what's known as the Sermon on the Plain. And he says some very powerful things there. He says, blessed are you who are poor, blessed are you who hunger, blessed are you who weep. Now, if I were to go around saying those to people, people would think it's just mere platitudes. If I was to approach you in your sorrow and say, blessed are you who weep now, you'd be like, that's very easy for you to say, what are you actually going to do to help me? It's very easy for you to talk about, you know, how it's good for me to be in pain, but what are you going to do about it? And having said all of these things, Jesus is going to show that not only does he talk about the blessing that is for those who are in suffering and pain now, but he's going to show that he cares for the poor, the lowly, and the suffering. And while the ultimate blessing for those who are poor and hungry and oppressed awaits the age to come when everything will be put right. What Jesus is going to show here is a foretaste of that age to come uh, and show that he is the one who cares, that he is the one who is going to bring about that that correction of all things. And so we're going to read it together from Luke chapter 7 and verse 1. And this is God's word to us. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was ill and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, 
Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. And this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. In this passage, we're presented with two stories of how Jesus showed his blessing on the lowly. In the first, we've got the story of the centurion. And we see how Jesus blessed those who feel their unworthiness, who feel they don't deserve God's care. And in the second, we see the story of the widow and her son. And we see how Jesus blesses the brokenhearted. And both stories emphasize to us that Jesus isn't just somebody that goes around uttering platitudes, blessed are those who weep. Jesus is someone who actually cares. Jesus is the one who will bring about that blessing for those who suffer. And in the first story then, we see this centurion whose servant was ill and was about to die. This centurion was a Roman soldier, probably a Gentile. Uh, So he wasn't a Jew. And he had the responsibility of 100 Roman soldiers underneath him. But nevertheless, he had a good relationship with the Jews Um, in in the area where he was stationed. We read in verse 5 that he loved the Jewish people and had provided for them a local synagogue or at least provided the funds for them in order to actually build this local synagogue. The Jewish elders then, probably leaders in the local community, want to help this man in return for all that he has done for them. And when they find out the centurion's servant is sick, a man that he values very highly because of his, his work ethic and doubtless a really good servant, They decide that they're going to go to Jesus because they know that Jesus will be able to do something about this. And they go to Jesus and ask Jesus to help. So they approach him and they say, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. And in one sense, that's quite a good observation that they make. He is a good person. He has helped them build their synagogue. He loves the Jewish people. And and compared to a lot of Roman soldiers that might have been very harsh and uh, very stern in their treatment of the population of Palestine, this, in one sense, is actually a man that does deserve care and attention because he, he is a good man. But that's not what the centurion thinks about himself. Because when Jesus gets near the house, he sends his friends who come and say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. 
for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Now, if you look at the parallel account to this in Matthew chapter 8, it, it would look at first glance that the centurion himself did come to speak to Jesus. But I think Matthew's just reporting this generically. Um, the messengers have come, and, and Matthew's not going all into all of those details. He's just reporting generically this, this message that comes from the centurion to Jesus. But Luke delves more into the specifics of it and highlights for us that the centurion doesn't feel worthy to even come to see the Lord Jesus. He doesn't consider himself worthy that Jesus should even come under his roof. And like Peter in chapter 5 of Luke's gospel, who falls at Jesus' knees and says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. This centurion realizes that he actually doesn't deserve God's blessing. He doesn't deserve anything from Jesus. Not his status as a Roman official, not his good works, not his friends and acquaintances in the Jewish community. None of that is actually going to enable him to earn God's favor. And so he considers himself not worthy. But still, even though he considers himself unworthy, not deserving of actually being with Jesus, it doesn't stop him expressing really confident faith. He is confident that Jesus is able to help him. After all, Jesus is the one who claimed to be a friend of sinners. And we've seen in chapter 5 that he says that he had not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And when people who see him sitting at table with people that regarded as sinners, doubtless news of this spread. And the message gets out that Jesus is actually someone with extraordinary compassion, someone with extraordinary mercy. That doesn't cast out people that aren't deserving, but that Jesus actually meets people in their undeserving state and their unworthiness does not stop Jesus from blessing them. And perhaps the centurion has heard about this and he's confident that Jesus is able to do something. So he comes with his remarkable display of faith and he says, say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes and I tell my servant do this and he does it. I don't know how deep this centurion's understanding ran as to who Jesus actually was. But he understands something. He understands that his position is parallel to that of Jesus. This centurion, of course, stands under the authority of the Roman Empire. And so when the centurion tells his soldiers to do something, it's not just him, whoever he is, saying it. He stands in the place of the, the Roman Empire. He stands giving commands with the authority of Rome behind him. So you can't just disobey him. And so he tells Jesus, I understand that you are also a person under authority. And when you speak, you've got all the resources of heaven behind you. When you speak, it's not just some mere earthly empire that backs up your words. When you speak, God himself acts. When you speak, all of the resources of heaven are at your disposal. And when Jesus sees such faith, he commends it. He's amazed and he says, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. But of course he had found faith in Israel. He had encountered many in Israel that, that did come to him, that wanted healing. And that's why they're all crowding round him, listening to him, seeking to be touched in order to, to receive healing from the Lord Jesus. So what is it about this man's faith that causes Jesus to be amazed so that he says that he hasn't found such great faith in Israel? I suspect it's the confidence that this Roman centurion has that this is more than an ordinary prophet. 
an ordinary prophet after all. If they want to perform a miracle, they'll, they'll pray to God. They'll call upon God to act. They might even perform some acts in order to entreat God to do something. But this centurion believes that Jesus is more than that. This centurion believes that all Jesus has to do is speak. And no matter the, the distance involved, no matter what other factors are involved, how difficult the situation is, all Jesus has to do is say the word and instantly his servant is going to be healed. And the centurion believes that. And Jesus is amazed at such faith. And Jesus then answers it by healing his servant. And so this centurion, he showed great humility, great sense of unworthiness. But he showed great faith as well, great confidence that despite his unworthiness, Jesus was interested in him and Jesus would intervene on his behalf. And his approach is very different from the, the way of the world, the, the mindset that we are encultured into. In 1971, L'Oreal came out with their famous slogan that is synonymous with their brand, because you're worth it. And whenever you hear that slogan, you think about L'Oreal products, and it's been synonymous with them for a long time. And that's the, the mindset of the world, you know, because you're worth it, you should look after yourself. You should receive good things. You should enjoy comfort in life because you are worth it. In some senses, we are worth a lot to God. We've been made in the image of God. We are valuable to God. In that sense, that's not wrong. But because we have rebelled against God, because we've turned our backs on God and gone away from God, in another sense... We don't deserve anything from God. The only thing that we deserve from God is condemnation. And so in that sense, we're not worth it. We're not worth Jesus spending time on us. Worth actually caring for us. Worth intervening. And any attempt to get God to bless us because we're worth it then falls flat in its face because we cannot earn God's favor and blessing. And our only way of approach to God is through the way of this centurion who comes along saying that he doesn't deserve Jesus' concern. He doesn't deserve to be with Jesus. But he believes that Jesus will act. And his approach to Jesus models for us how we approach our Lord Jesus. Others might even look at us and say, you know, that they really deserve God's blessing in their life. They're good people. God deserves to, to do good things for them. But we, if we know ourselves, we know that our lives are too messed up. We know that sin runs deep in our lives. And we know that we do not deserve God to bless us. And God brings us to that realization that Peter came to, that the centurion comes to. But he doesn't do that in order to cripple us so that we go away and think, well, I'm miserable and nobody can do anything for me. God brings us to that point of helplessness, that sense of unworthiness, so that he can come to us in grace, so that we realize that his goodness towards us isn't based upon anything that we are or anything that we do, but simply because he loves us and he cares. And Jesus, he promises this blessing to the needy, to the poor, to those who sorrow, and Jesus shows here that he makes good on it. And to those who approach Jesus 
in their sense of unworthiness, we find that Jesus never fails them. And we approach Jesus risen and ascended this morning, coming to him, our living Lord and head, knowing that whatever we come to him with this morning, whatever problems we have, whatever sense of unworthiness we feel, we find that that same voice that addressed the centurion's problems 2,000 years ago is the same voice that can speak for us today and does speak in our defense and does speak in order to intervene in our lives. And for sure, the final resolution to our, our needs will be addressed in a coming day when the Lord Jesus comes in glory. But still, before that day, it's Jesus' voice that can meet our needs. And to those who feel their unworthiness and approach the Lord Jesus asking for his help, the Lord Jesus is there and sees their need. Now in our next narrative, the Lord Jesus again, he shows his care. And this time it's for the brokenhearted. Remember in the Sermon on the Plain, he's already said, Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Now, like I said, if you were to say that to somebody in their sorrow, they would, they would wonder if you were being deeply insensitive. But for Jesus, this isn't just a mere platitude because Jesus has the power to take away people's tears and to replace them with laughter. And so he comes to this town called Nain. And there's a large crowd that accompanies him. And as they arrive, there's a funeral procession on its way out of this village. And there's a large crowd accompanying this poor widowed woman. And on the bier is the body of this young man, the only son of this poor woman. And as much as this woman will draw comfort from the fact that there's this large crowd of mourners who are with her, I wouldn't be surprised if this woman felt deeply lonely at that moment. Because her family had all gone. Her husband had doubtless died previously, and now her only son had died. And as good as it is that the village is there to support her, her family are gone, and that means she's got no means of supporting herself anymore, and she would have felt deeply lonely and very broken. And when Jesus sees her, we read that his heart went out to her, or he had compassion on her. Because he sees her weeping, and it affects him deeply. He's moved by this. And later on, the writer of Hebrews will say that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, be touched with the feelings of our weaknesses. And here the Lord Jesus, he shows that. He sympathizes with her and he's touched by her. And he says to her, don't weep, don't cry. And he does more than just say comforting things to try and to make her feel better because he goes up to the bier on which this body is being carried and he touches it. And the bearers all stand still because they're shocked because normally in such situations, touching the dead would render you unclean, ceremonially unclean in Jewish culture and you would have to go through the process of purification. And so generally people don't don't make themselves unclean if they can avoid it. But Jesus shows that his power is such that he doesn't become unclean. Rather, his power transcends that. And so he says, 
Simple words, young man, I say to you, get up. And the young man, he, he sits up. It's just completely matter of fact, this recording of what takes place. He sits up and Jesus presents him back to his mother, whose tears at this point doubtless turn into astonished laughter. I can imagine her laughing in, in sheer astonishment at what has just taken place. Her life has turned completely around. And what Jesus did was so amazing that the crowd are astonished and realise that a great prophet has come. Doubtless they would have thought about Elijah. Elijah had done something similar in 1 Kings chapter 17. And we realise that he had been staying with a widow. And the widow that he'd been staying with had a son. And her son died. And she's heartbroken because of it. And so Elijah, he takes the child and he goes and he prays and calls upon God to heal the child. Then he stretches himself out on the child multiple times, calling upon God to heal this child. And then eventually God heals the child and he presents the child back to his mother. And so the cried... They're very aware of miracles like this, being familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, and they say a great prophet has appeared among us. But it's important to note how different this is from Elijah's work as well, because you, you've got Elijah, and he keeps on calling upon God to do something. He does these symbolic acts repeatedly, calling upon God to, to actually intervene in this situation. Elijah, he feels his helplessness. But this isn't what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't call upon God. Jesus doesn't do anything spectacular. Jesus simply speaks. He says, young man, I say to you, get up. And so when the people say God has come to help his people, they might not have really understood the depth of meaning in those words. But when we're looking at this story, we realise that, that this is more true than they even realise. God really had come to be among them. God himself, in the person of his son, was walking amongst them, speaking, commanding the dead to live. And the voice that had spoken at creation and had brought life out of nothing was speaking again. John, in his gospel, says all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. And that voice that had spoken life into creation speaks again and the dead spring to life and while this wasn't a resurrection as such because this man would then later on die and go to his grave so it wasn't a resurrection in that sense yet nevertheless it's a foretaste of the fact that jesus has power over death and one day he's going to show that power over death not merely as an abstract display of power just because he can or just because he's the one that's, that's got this responsibility, but because he cares, because he sees the brokenness of people. He sees the devastation and heartbreak that death causes, how death robs us of life, of companionship, and the joy that we can share in this world. And he's heartbroken by this, and he's going to fix it. And so Jesus showed great compassion on this poor, broken-hearted woman. It's not like us. So often we don't have the, the energy within ourselves to feel the compassion that we, that 
we feel we should feel for this world that's broken around us. I don't know about you, but as I've been following events in the Middle East, in Israel, in Gaza, and hear the, the reports of thousands of people being killed, thousands of children suffering in, in famine, in poverty, and you want to feel compassion for that. You want to feel moved by that. But it just becomes a number. And when you try to look at the images on TV or on social media, you scroll past or you turn away because it's too much. You can't take in that level of suffering. And so we resist feeling the depths of compassion that we feel we ought to experience because of the immense suffering in our world. And, and that's not necessarily a condemnation because we are limited. We can't feel for everyone who suffers in the world. It, it would be too much for us. We are finite. Our compassion is limited. But that's just so unlike Jesus. Because when we see him in the Gospels and he sees suffering, he sees people in sorrow, and in pain, he doesn't turn away and say that he's too busy or that he's got too much pressure on him. Because he could say that because there's this crowd that's pressing in on him and doubtless they're all clamoring for his attention and yet he sees this one woman in her suffering and he goes to her because he cares for her. And that's because he's not only the God who feels compassion, but he's the God who can make a difference. And Jesus hasn't changed. It doesn't mean that he instantly heals every sickness, instantly reverses every death, because we know that he doesn't do that. But when he was here upon earth, he gave a foretaste of the fact that he had power over sickness and death. A foretaste of what he would accomplish in the future. Because one day he will come and he will do away with all sickness. He will reverse death itself. And he will wipe away the tears from every eye. And sometimes he does it even now. Uh, healing people that pray to him for healing. Um, but he doesn't always do it now. Because it's a foretaste of what is yet to come. But he does have compassion on us in this world filled with sickness and death. And every one of us either has been or will be deeply affected by death at some point or another. And it's important for us to remember that Jesus sees you in those moments. And Jesus feels compassion for you in those moments of your suffering. Isaiah, he records in chapter 25 and verse 7 what God will do in a coming day. He says, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He's imagining death like a great veil that's spread over this world. And he's going to take it away. And he says, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. And Jesus sees the sorrow that death brings in our world. But because he has defeated death through his death, and because he has brought life through his resurrection, then he assures us 
and he is confident of the day when one day he will bring death to an end. And he waits for the day when he says he will wipe away the tears from all faces. Because Jesus sees tears. Jesus cares about tears. And Jesus will turn weeping into laughter. Because that's what he says he's going to do. And in a world where talk is cheap, Jesus is completely different. When he says, blessed are those who weep now, and when he blesses the poor and the lowly, he does it because he's going to be the one who reverses their pain and who wipes away their tears. And he showed it when he was here upon earth. He meets this man, this centurion, who feels utterly unworthy. And he shows him that he is the God who cares. And it comes to him, not on the basis that he is worthy, that he deserves anything, but because he is the God who shows grace. And he comes to this broken-hearted woman who grieves and weeps. And he shows that he is not only the God who cares, but he is the God who wipes away tears and turns weeping into laughter. And this isn't the end of the story. This is the foretaste of what Jesus is going to do. This is the Jesus that we look to and see him portrayed in these pages of scripture and say, that is our Jesus. That is the one that we know. That is the one who sees my pain. That is the one who sees my suffering. And that is the one who's going to wipe away my tears. And we wait for him to come and do that. Because we believe that that one who spoke and reversed sickness, that one who spoke and brought the dead to life 2,000 years ago is the one who will come again. And again his voice will be heard. And death will be finished. Our sickness will be over. And he will wipe away the tears from our faces. And we long for that day. Let's close in prayer. And we'll have some refreshments together. Almighty God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who reveals to us in these pages of scripture the depth of love and compassion that you have towards us. We thank you that he showed compassion through his mighty works of healing. And we thank you most of all for the compassion that our Lord Jesus had upon us, through which he went to the cross and bore our sins so that we could be forgiven and so that we can have the assurance that one day we will meet him in the air and one day he will wipe away the tears from all of our faces and we will be with him in joy forevermore. Until that day then, Lord, we wait and pray that we would keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the Saviour for whom we wait. We ask it in his name.